0: When you enrich the lives of your employees through purpose-powered leadership, they'll grow your business for you. Welcome to the Higher Purpose Podcast, where you'll discover how to champion a culture of courage and love. Stop dealing with symptoms and get to the root of the problems in your business. This is the Higher Purpose Podcast with your host, Kevin Monroe.
1: Hey, it's Kevin Monroe, and it's my privilege to welcome you again to the Higher Purpose Podcast. This is episode 50, believe it or not. And boy, do we have a great conversation heading your way in just a moment. Imagine going to a website, and here are the words that greet you on the homepage more love, less fear, amazing results, make work more human. That is what you see when you go to MakeWorkMoreHuman.com. And if you're like me, you might begin to wonder what kind of organization is behind a website like this. Maybe it's a woo-woo consultancy. You know, a bunch of airy-fairy do-gooders. Or maybe it's a nonprofit group. Oh, I know some of you are thinking, ah, it's a bunch of millennials running that one. No, Actually, if you drop to the very bottom of the page, as I did, you find it's run by the Washington State Department of Enterprise Services. And today, I'm delighted to be introducing you and welcoming as our guest, Renee Smith. Renee is the Director of Organization Development for Washington State's Department of Enterprise Services. Our paths crossed through LinkedIn as a result of people sharing posts about a podcast episode I did back in February about love belonging in the workplace. That led Renee and me to connect for a conversation to get acquainted, and as we talked, I knew we had to have her join us here on the Higher Purpose Podcast to explore this concept of making work more human and their journey along this quest. Because that is indeed a higher purpose perspective about work. So when was the last time you listened to a business conversation about the power of love in the workplace? We certainly need more of those. And I hope you enjoy this conversation, especially when I ask Renee about the four recurring themes that her primary research revealed about the high cost of fear, as well as the four themes she found about the deep impact of love all in the quest of making work more human. So, here we go. It's a real pleasure to welcome Renee Smith to the Higher Purpose Podcast. Renee, we are elated to have you join us today.
2: I'm so pleased to be here, Kevin. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me.
1: Sure. Before we jump into this energetic discussion that you and I are going to have, let us get to know you as a human, not just an OD professional.
2: So, what what would you like us to know about you, Renee? Mm, well, I was born and raised in the state of Washington, uh, and I've spent most of my life there. A uh, uh, little bit of time in Alaska and some time traveling, um, but I, I love uh, where I live in Tacoma. It's a beautiful place to the- travel. You've done time traveling? Yeah, time. <laughs> now that's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a to remain the time traveler. No, <laughs> that's a secret secret of superpowers. <laughs> uh, I, am, I have four grown children and three grandchildren, and uh, for a time in my life, I was a single mom of those four children, mm-hmm. and while I was um, putting myself through school, um, and there's a lot about. Uh, kind of reclaiming life and voice, that's probably a whole other podcast, but uh, uh, coming back into your own and, and finding your way in the world is um, part of what my life path has been. Um, I, love, I love art. I love really great food, and so I would say I'm an artistic paella pursuer this year. I'm really focusing in on pursuing my uh, drawing skills and perfecting those a little bit, and I uh, have a, a trip planned to Barcelona where I um, have big intentions about Uh, Getting good at and learning about how to make the socarrat, the crust that uh, one person wants on the paella, Uh, and uh, it's a few things about me, and I um, I love the work that I do too. And
1: oh, I can tell you love the work you do. So, so you love family, you love work, you love art, you love food, yes,
2: and travel, travel,
1: and some travel in there. Yeah, there we go. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. So let's hear a little bit. What's the journey? That led to the Make Work More Human project in Washington State.
2: Yeah. So, um, the state of Washington, um, a little bit of background um, that sets the context. We, as a state enterprise, have been pursuing quality improvement work over the last like 25 years and over many administrations. Each, each governor who's come into the seat has had um, their own. Um, Eagerness and desire to improve the delivery of government services, and um, you know whether it's kind of TQM or quality circles or the Baldridge, our version of the Baldridge Award, those kinds of things. That's been part of our heritage and, and part of what we've developed in government. And um, our, our previous governor, as well as our cu- current governor Jay Inslee, um, has a both championed, and, and Governor Inslee has particularly advanced the championing of us uh, as a state. Um, pursuing a lean transformation journey of state government so that's um, been happening really for the last eight years and then particularly the last six with his administration and in the um, while th- that journey was launched in the state um, my agency was formed at the same time and uh, we were you know a consolidation of all our parts of five different agencies into one this one new agency big disruption big opportunity to create a new kind of culture for this um, for a central ser- central services agency mm-hmm. um, and as we did that, our leaders um, said, we need to we need to focus on building this culture around uh, a lean culture and embrace uh, lean thinking and methods and principles to guide the way that we work. Because the only hope that we have of really delivering on the promises of our agency um, is if we embrace this lean culture. So they hired me to come in and build that program, and we've been pursuing that ever since. And, uh, you know… I mean, there's a lot to that story. There's a a lot that I could share. I think the the critical part um, about where we're at with that now is that we see and view Lean um, not as a set of tools and improvement methodologies, but rather as a human-centered philosophy of work that creates a particular kind of culture that's curious and collaborative and caring, and that um, pursues delivering better value to Washingtonians and making public service deeply gratifying. Um, so like, that's what, we're, what we've been going after both within our own agency, across state government, and then uh, my program uh, has, uh, as part of it, uh, an external consulting program, Government to uh, Government Lean Consulting, g to g Lean Consulting, it's called. Um, and so, within the context of that, we also are helping other lo- states and local governments anywhere um, to advance on their lean transformation journeys. Um, so, that's, that's the context of the work. And one day, uh, I, was, I was having um, a conversation with my senior leader, with the director of our agency, Chris Liu, and I asked Chris, um, Finally, in this conversation, I asked him, so, Chris, what's the most important job of a leader? And he didn't hesitate. It was significant that he didn't hesitate. He immediately answered back to eliminate fear from the workplace.
0: Mm.
2: And it was just a beautiful moment. It's like one of those, one of those moments that you never forget. And I thought, ah, oh, that's, that's it. That's right. That's beautiful. And, and, you know, Dr. Deming said that back in the day, but here was my senior leader, declaring that and I had seen him trying to live into that setting that direction um, you know in, inviting other leaders to uh, live in that way um, and not that he always got that right and not that we always get that right and it, you know our journey has been up and down and has had you know we all we are all human and we sometimes struggle with that but that was the direction that he'd set and um, you know clearly his intention
1: okay so there was this conversation yes yeah and I love that the, the question and the answer, what's the most important job of the leader right. to eliminate fear from the workplace? Correct. Then what else happened in that conversation or, or what was the conversation after that conversation? And, you know, keep going right. with it because I know. Yeah, I know
0: so,
2: <laughs> So from, from that statement, it really made me start to consider, um, I knew that that, that uh, effort to decrease fear was um, imperative to the work that we have been doing to try to empower, to, I don't like the word empower actually, but to engage and to like, unleash the workforce and the, the brilliance of the workforce on making government better. Um, and you, know, you have to have safety in order to do that. So I'm, you know, considering, like, if if we're decreasing fear, that's going away. Something else has to take its place. And what is it that's taking its place? And I, you know, thought about that for a long time and and read and considered and came to believe that the opposite of fear, um, the countermeasure to fear, the thing that was taking fear's place in our organization was love. That we were building organizations based on love. And that that was the core idea, that, that fear and love are two core uh, the two core human emotional experiences everything else comes out of those two emotional experiences and and we don't want one and we want the other and good things happen with with love
1: okay and and it's love. It's this whole concept of love and talking about love is what led us to meet initially. That's right. Uh, back in February, we had done a podcast episode talking about love. Somebody on LinkedIn shared that, tagged you in the post, mm-hmm. and then you and I learned about each other. We started having these conversations. Uh, and so... I want to go back. Was this, at first, this was the fear side of the equation came Mm -hmm. out in conversation with your senior leader. Yes. The love side came out later in reflecting on that. If we're wanting to take fear out, which is good, but that creates a void. What fills the void? Right. Okay. Exactly. And then for the listener, for you listening, I just want to, what, what Renee has just shared is something Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote. Uh, There are only two emotions, and I'm quoting from Elizabeth now, love and fear. All positive emotions come from love, all negative emotions come from fear. From love flows happiness, contentment, peace, and joy. From fear comes anger, hate, anxiety, and guilt. It's true, there are only two primary emotions, love and fear. But it's more accurate to say that there is only love or fear for we cannot feel these two emotions together at exactly the same time. They're opposites. If we're in fear, we're not in a place of love where we when we're in a place of love, we cannot be in a place of fear. Is, have you seen that to be true?
2: Yes, totally. And, uh, the, the consequences for our, uh, in our brains and our bodies uh, the things that happen in us when we are in fear um, are you know uh, tearing us down. Um, you know initially, you know, obviously fight or flight kicks in um and and we can become aggressive or we can retreat um, in the workplace that has a you know takes a very particular form. you know people people uh, either lash out at times when they're afraid, if they feel threatened, or they um they disappear, right? They don't volunteer, they uh, you know, they, they withhold their ideas. They, they don't, you know, they don't step up or they just leave the organization or they're sick a lot, right. They're, they're either absent or they just, just leave. Um, and, and if we have chronic fear over time, really bad things happen in our bodies. Mm. Um, we talk about PTSD, which is, you know, a version of that. And, and certainly in the workplace and in the research that I've done, um, people described the cro- the impacts of chronic fear, on their bodies in, in sickness and, um, you know, both physical and psychological um, health impacts. Okay, but so we're going to come
1: back and talk about the research in a moment. Was there yeah. something you wanted to say there? I, I didn't yeah, make- I
2: was just going to say when we're in a love condition, though, we're healing. Um, yeah. Our bodies physically heal when we're experiencing love. And, uh, and like, you know, we are content, we're calm, um, we're more connected, and, and we are physiologically healing when, when we're in a love state, so...
1: Okay, so you have this epiphany or this realization somewhat privately. Yes. But then you began to share this. So was it Chris that you, you go back to Chris and you have a conversation to extend the uh, realization of fear and love? Or when did love enter the conversation with someone besides your personal thoughts?
2: Yeah, I, I shared it with him in anticipation of a, a short, a brief introduction that he and I were going to give, um, where he was going to talk about the role of a leader and talk about eliminating fear. And I was going to, you know, chime in at the end with, and with fear, when fear goes out, something takes its place and it's love. And we were using that to introduce te- our teams who were going to be sharing stories about what happens when they work in an organization like that what's possible all the great improvement work that they had done and just showcasing their work um, and so you know i shared that hypothesis if you will with them and uh and so that was great and uh, the the thing that was significant is we, we went to do this introduction and you know you could have heard a pin drop in the room when i when i said love we had about 400 people in the room and and at the Lean conference when we were you know doing this and um, when i said you know we're love is the thing that's taking fierce place and, and the whole room went dead silent. And, uh, you know, it took a joke to kind of shake people out of, you know, make them laugh at, you know, I I just said the L word and it's okay. You know, (laughs) Um, because we are not comfortable. People are not comfortable with using the word love in the context of the workplace. And we can talk more about that. Um, But in, in that very short statement that I made was an overwhelmingly positive response, Um, spontaneous applause from the audience at the end of that, just that short statement. And, Um, people reaching out to me for weeks after that, um, kind of tapping me on the shoulder or sending me email or giving me a call to say, I heard you say that, and oh my gosh, keep saying that. We need to hear that. We need more of that. And um, it it just hit me. So it was stunning um, and and hit me that I I found something here that is tapping into something really essential um, and critical to us at this point in time.
1: Yes, so I think I think this is a powerful conversation, Renee. And this is, you know, if we get to the gist of it, this mm-hmm. whole idea of make work more human is interesting, and I really want to talk about that. But it's this conversation around love. Yeah. You started talking about love in the workplace, love in government, love, in government. Right? yes, and love in in what many people consider one of the most bureaucratic type mm-hmm. organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I understand people would be very comfortable talking about eliminating fear from the work environment. We all get that. What what are some of the experiences you've had as you've begun to talk beyond that initial audience talking about love? And and how have you, the receptivity you found to love and talking about love at work?
2: So what I've again I've been I've been stunned and delight like, delightfully surprised by uh, how much people warm to this idea. They're initially shocked, and you know, and honestly, I could use any other any other word or concept that is a subset of love, mm-hmm. um, and not have the same um, sort of stop people dead in their tracks, like and make them uncomfortable kind of <laughs> experience. And yet, it also would not get. Um, It wouldn't stop and make people think um, and pause and consider um, the big idea in the same way. So using the word love is intentional. And then usually from that conversation, people, um, we we evolve to, you know, all the ways that we express love and all the different kinds of love that are appropriate in the workplace. Um, But, you know, the initial response is sort of first shock and then relief, and then gratitude, and then um, warming, to not only warming to that idea, but um, being so excited to explore that idea. Um, And, you know, it's not universal. There's certainly people who um, stumble on it and who are, like, not game to go there. And, you know, it's it's kind of a bell curve, if you will, of experience. But um, but the the overwhelming and predominant number of people are enthusiastic and warm to it.
1: So I, I want to applaud you for using the word love and, and being brave because I've had many conversations and I'll also use the word love. But I think back uh, to a gentleman, he's been a mentor of mine through the years, recent years, Erie Chapman, and he wrote a book, Radical Loving Care, mm-hmm. and introduced radical loving care into hospitals, the healing healthcare movement. And Erie said, uh, and he was CEO at three different hospitals. Mm-hmm. And at one of those, the board chair came up and said, okay, We got to call this something else, you know. Can't we call it radical compassionate care? Can't we call it anything but love? And to Erie's credit, he said what you said. No, yeah. Anything less than using the L word doesn't cut it. You know, it's got to be love, and love is radical. uh, Radical in that getting to the root of things. Uh, So. What is it? You just mentioned there's shock, relief, gratitude. And I think there may have been something else beyond that. Well, I, I, get, I get the shock. Mm-hmm. What's the relief? What, and how do people kind of get over the shock? And, and well, first off, explain a little more. Why are people shocked? Why do you think people are shocked mm-hmm. in, in using love?
2: Well, we've, we've certainly been socialized. Um, well, let me back up. I think we start out as human beings naturally as children as 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 in, from our you know from our very earliest days uh, needing attachment needing connection and needing the expression of love we need it to survive children you know babies that uh, do not experience love and attachment don't survive um, we know that um, and and yet over time we we kind of wean we've weaned ourselves as a society and as we become adults from our uh, direct connection to that, except for in our in our private lives. But we have kind of uh, cleansed our public and professional world of this thing that is essential, this quality of our human experience that is essential to our humanity, um, and that is actually essential to our you know our best performance. Um, you know, our best connections with other people, our best, like, team, uh, uh, our best team experiences, our best leadership experiences are all essentially hinge on love. Um, but we've, you know, we've, we've conditioned ourselves as a society away from that um, and kind of locked love away out of these whole huge spheres of our lives. Um, and I think we are so that, you know, the, the shock is that we just, like, don't usually allow that. You know, mm. it's just not socially acceptable because we we you know said it's a it's it's a thing that belongs over here, but not here. We and, and I think we bifurcated our humanity when we do that. Mm. We're doing ourselves a disservice mm. as as people. Um, so that you know, I definitely see that.
1: You talked about helping people understand different types of love. Mm-hmm. What are those different types, as you understand it?
2: Well, you know, people um, as we dialogue, people talk about. Um, and some of this comes out of, uh, you know, I don't want to use the word love, but I will use this other word. So, and, and they're, what they're expressing is there's all these other facets or experiences of love. So they talk about belonging, a feeling that they belong, um, a feeling that they matter, a feeling cared about, you know, care is, is a pretty close um, word to say, I care about you is pretty dang close to saying, I love you. Um, or, you know, I, I, I will care for someone, I will love someone. It's just, you know they're they're pretty synonymous. Um, uh, respect is another um, another version of that. I really love the uh, the the definition of respect that uh, John Miller translated from the Toyota respect for people. So kind of back to our lean roots a little bit. Um, the 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 phrase in the Japanese translates as holding precious what it is to be human. Mm. Um, which, you know, so I really love that. If we're holding someone's humanity as precious, um, then. We're loving them you know it's it's a it's a piece. it's a, it's emanating from a loving space um yeah love care respect i think inclusion um is another as another form of love there's all kinds, and we could you know explore there's all empathy compassion all of those are um, right. different versions of love
1: right and uh, cs lewis had a classic book years ago i don't remember when it was written but it was called the four loves Hmm. And, and he goes through four Greek words for love, where in the English language we have one word for love. And that kind of helped the distinction, you know, when, when we, because I think what the love that people get scared of at work is the love that, uh, romantic love erotic love you know mm-hmm. and, and they think oh, gosh, exactly. we, we can't be talking about that that's what gets people in trouble okay. but then there's phileo the the love of brothers brotherhood you know brothers and sisters uh, agape this unconditional love th- those kinds of when we think about that okay there's this broader understanding of love and then as you talked about there are these different facets of love so now I want to go back. This make work more human. Were you calling it make work more human from the beginning of the project, your project, or when um, did that phrase come in? Uh,
2: that that came in a little bit later after the research and after sort of analyzing the, the research to understand what was there and then to begin to move forward and, and to want to bring ideas forward into the world and to try to capture what is it that we're trying, you know, that, that this is what, what stakes am I really putting in the ground here? Um, and so it, that that came from that effort to really think through how do I want to um, capture this idea. And what are the stakes
1: that you decided we're putting in the ground? The, these are the stakes. And how did you land on the phrase make work more human rather than make work less something else? <laughs> make work <laughs> less bureaucratic. Uh, make work more human.
2: Yeah, well, it, that's an interesting question. I, I, you know, hmm. I, I think it... I'm trying to think back to the process for that. You know, part of it is the like the intersection of several things coming together. It's this idea of respect for people, being holding precious what it is to be human, are um, uh, landing on this um, and embracing this definition of lean as a human-centered philosophy of work, yeah. um, and then, um, you know, the, the trajectory of our agency has been to have this—the um, the, people at the center running through everything. So there was this thing about people and humanity um, that seemed, that was important. Um, and then, you know, arriving at this epiphany, as she put it, about um, the need for more love and less fear. Um, and and just in in reflecting on that and studying that, um, that just knowing that, that's es- that it's essential to our humanity. It is a, what we're about as human beings. And so, you know, the confluence of that um, Kind of came in the statement of this is this is what we need to do. We need to make work more human. Um, It's kind of a and not more humane. (laughs) It's slightly grammatically interesting, perhaps, but um, but it's straightforward and it kind of is a call. It's a uh, it's kind of offering that there. Here's a direction. Here's something that we can do, um, and that that goes back to the core of who we are.
1: Okay. So we're going to pause just a moment because there's something we want to share with you. And then I'm going to come back and we're going to dive deeper with Renee around this. Really, what does it mean to make work more human?
0: Do you ever think that your work could be a little less ordinary? There's not much in between you and something extraordinary. Just 13 weeks and a bold experiment. Find out more at kevindemonroe.com slash extraordinary to get ready to take your team, your leadership, or your customers to the next level. That's kevindemonroe.com slash extraordinary.
1: Hey, I'm back and I'm talking with Renee Smith, who's the Director of Organizational Development for the Washington State Department of Enterprise Services. And Renee leads a project, and blogs at a website that's called Make Work More Human. And we right before the break, we were talking about where the name came from. Uh, Renee, I'm really curious here. What what does it take to make work more human?
2: Mm. You know, I think that the best way to, to talk about that is to dive in and share about the research that I did that, really? that is sort of core to, um, where I went with this next. Um, so, you know, after, after talking to Chris and getting that initial, you know, having this initial epiphany, um, and, and, and sharing this big idea and then getting this response and, and realizing, wow, there's something here that I need to understand better. And, um, Um, I didn't just want to start writing about it or talking about it. I really wanted to dive in and understand and to see what I could contribute to the the thinking about this. So um, as a good social scientist, I decided that the thing I could do would be to do some qualitative research. And I decided to interview people um, about their experiences of fear and love at work. Hmm. And so on uh, Valentine's Day of 2017, ironically, (laughs) I uh, did my first uh, fear and love research interview. And, um, and then, over the course of the last year, have interviewed almost 50 people um, about their experiences at work with fear and love. So, the, the format is uh, to sit down one-on-one usually, although some of this has been done in um, group workshops, but to ask the individual to share about a time when they felt afraid at work mm. and what happened, what did they do, what did others do, um, how did it impact them and their work, their customers, their team, their organization, and what did it mean to them to have that experience? And then to um, tell me a story about a time when they felt loved at work. And you know they can define love however they want right. um, and uh, tell me that story and what happened, what did they do, what did others do, what was the impact on them and on their work and on their customers, and what did that mean to them? And out of those stories um, have come some incredible insights about the high cost of fear mm. and the incredible potential of love. Um, and so I can, I can tell you a little bit about the, 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 there were four themes that came out of the fear stories and then three themes that came out of the love stories.
1: Sure. Okay. So you said there were four insights that you had gained from the high cost of fear. Unpack those four, if you
2: will. Sure. So the first was, um, I, people said, I didn't know how to be successful after a change. That was one of the common fear themes. Um, and they described being happy and comfortable, having a seasoned leader, perhaps getting good performance reviews, integrated in a team, like feeling good about their work and who they were and what they did. Um, but then something shifted. Um, the work changed, uh, the, you know, something about the job changed or their leader changed. Mm-hmm. And um, then suddenly, Things weren't the same and they didn't know, no one helped them to know how to be successful in the new situation. Um, and people said things like, you know, they went to, from knowing what to expect to never knowing what was expected or being unable to perform, being on the outside, um, there being sort of a new inner circle and being excluded from that inner circle, those yeah. kinds of things, um, and feeling a lack of trust. And often, I think in, in, in each of these stories, um, people quit and left the job and went somewhere else. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, the second theme was um, I was betrayed. Mm. and Like violations of trust were, were a central thing, either violating personal trust or violating positional trust. So we, you know, we trust leaders to have integrity, and when they don't, um, it's really deeply distressing to people. So people describe not wanting to go to work, um, of being worried that they might be asked to do something unethical, of avoiding the leader. Um, one person, one person said, "I was like a hobbit trying to stay out of the eye of Mordor." <laughs> so, um, you know, the processing all that f- fear and um, and the betrayal took a long time away from the work. And um, people described anxiety and physical illness and low energy. Um, so there's there's always this set of um, the impact to the work, but you know, uh, frequently physical impacts on on individuals and health impacts. Is third was oh, go ahead, yeah. If we take that home,
1: mm-hmm. right? If this is happening at work, there yes. is a consequence at home. Yes. At, at yeah. some level. And we're we're not here to delve into that today, but I'm I'm just, you know, uh, yeah. So the consequences go beyond the workplace. So the consequences of fear at work trickle down into negative environments at home and personal life.
2: At home, in the community. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. All right. We, so what was the yeah, we, I was going to say we lose, um, we not only lose at work, but we lose in, in our society overall, it, you know, it reverberates. Yeah. The third theme was I was publicly shamed
0: Ooh.
2: and humiliated. So people described being called out in meetings and yelled at and belittled, uh, questioned and picked apart. People said they were backstabbed. Yeah. Um, people had their improvement shot down, those kinds of things. Uh, they felt guarded and stressed and um, it, people Oh, like it, in any of these cases, um, it was amazing how people like pushed through to to still try to deliver for customers like you know they, they, it wasn 't that they were totally derailed, but it was so much harder to do what they needed to do mm. um, took a whole lot longer and a whole lot more energy and resources and and just took its toll on people. These stories were um, particularly um, tragic, really, uh, were, were, uh, were difficult. Um, the physical impacts people talked about were things like weight gain and eczema and stomach ailments and insomnia, um, right. diabetes increasing and depression, um, and as you just said, people taking fear home. Um, people talked about needing to go to therapy. Um, and in these interviews, I had several people that actually became emotional and broke down and, and, the, and cried and the retelling of their stories, sometimes about stories that had happened five or seven or ten years previously. I was
1: going so, to ask that, Renee, after yeah. you got through the list, because I, I could imagine yeah. these conversations. First off, you've done something to create this environment in a workplace and allow people to talk about something they probably never expected to talk about. And <laughs> then we're talking about something that is intensely personal and very painful. So I'm sure there were moments. Uh, did you expect that from the beginning or, or were you kind of caught off guard?
2: Well, I knew that we were, you know, I was being invited into sort of a sacred space or, you know, a very um, tender place for, for people in just the, having the dialogue and asking the questions. Um, I, what I wasn't expecting, but I'm grateful for to, to be part of is the, sort of the therapeutic nature of having the interview. Hmm. Um, so people did tell me later that how much it helped to just process that and be able to set it aside now um, and move on and just like having given that story to someone and sort of help them deal with it. Um, particularly when we did the group workshops, that was true. that Some people couldn't even remember the story that they had shared, um, even though it had been wow. the thing, you know, that they and were. Here's processing. the
1: other thing that I, I'm wondering if you've experienced, I know I've experienced, sat down with people and, you know, the first times they're telling a pain story and you don't know when it happened, mm-hmm. but the pain is as real as though it happened Yesterday or last week, yeah. And then you discover it was three years ago, five years ago, seven or twelve years ago. Yes. What does that tell you? They've been carrying that pain,
2: exactly. Wow. And and trying to function, trying to carry on. um, You know, if they're still in that same environment, although most of these people describe not being in the same environment anymore. um, But if they still are, just that, like it's such a heavy. It's it's such you know it's trying to it's trying to run a marathon with a a sack of bricks on your back. Mm Okay, so what was the fourth insight then? Yeah, so the fourth um, was not being supported um, during a personal crisis or being isolated during a personal crisis. So, you know, life happens. Life happens to people. Um, people die. People get sick. People get divorced. Kids get on you know addicted to drugs. It's like stuff happens. And um, too often um, in these stories, Managers would tell folks to you know leave home at home and work at work. I don't know. I don't want to know about your personal stuff. You know, and just expected to pe- expected people to sort of you know set themselves aside, set the reality of whatever they're you know they're dealing with in, in aside, and somehow show up devoid of that and just focus on the work. And that is just so not real <laughs> for you right. know who we are as people. Not that people would be obsessed with the thing or you know. Um, not be able to carry on, but they're actually, they're much more able to function and carry on when they can be upfront with it, or when they can be transparent, or you know, receive temporary support in some ways, accommodations sometimes in some ways to get through that time. Um, but when they're told, you know, to to bifurcate themselves or you know, deny who they are, Marking and what's happening, yeah, it, um, they, um, I think they experience that as a real betrayal. Yeah. It's sort of a betrayal of what it means, again, to be human. Um, people, One woman said um, uh, that it, it was like her boss expected her to pass through this magical curtain and pretend she wasn't herself. Mm. Um, and there was a lot of fear, uh, you know, fear that she'd be fired after the problem passed, um, that she was considered trouble, that kind of thing. Um, anyway, uh, yeah.
1: So, so I have a question, because mm-hmm. I going to ask you about the love stories.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: which was, which was easier for people to locate and identify and share? Good.
2: The love stories or the fear stories? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure that I can answer that for people, but what I can tell you is that um, the fear stories took a lot longer to tell. Mm. They they were they you know usually it took about an each interview took about an hour and more of that hour was taken up in the telling of their fear story than in, in, their, than of their love story. The love story flowed faster and freer and it would just had more energy. So there was a speed to, to those. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the fear stories also seemed to carry with them. Um, people carried the need to be sure that I knew like the detail that I knew the details and knew that, that, that they weren't at fault. Like there is this sense of suspicion that, um, or the, the, wanting to be sure that there wasn't suspicion about, well, maybe you actually were a problem or this or that. And so, like, wow. there was a lot of investment in making sure that the details were laid out in clear. Um, wow. So.
1: Okay, so all of a sudden right there, I'm thinking, this is the compound interest on fear. Yeah,
2: that's a beautiful way to put it. Or, right, yeah, I mean,
1: right like, there what you're saying, that's the compound interest. Yes. Because these folks are like, okay, that happened. But but you really need to understand. Yes. And that just to me, it just shows. Wow. Fear adds
2: on layers. Yeah, the, the mental energy, the the baggage that comes with this that we don't and it, it doesn't end when the situation ends. Yeah. Uh, we carry that psychically with us. Wow. Uh, with us.
1: Okay, so now I'm ready yeah. for a love story. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Can we please? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the first theme was my leader cared about me. Yeah. My leader cared about me. So my leader took an interest in me as a person. I was recognized. Um, I felt belonging and appreciation and respect. Um, people, you know, describe things like the leaders getting to know them and their interests and skills, and like taking an interest in who they were as people, and then investing in them or and supporting in them in some you know particular ways that made sense you know to the situation to help them grow to learn to have new opportunities, um, being trusted to innovate or to try something new, and the, these folks always um, describe feeling. Um, loyal and energetic and excited about their jobs. You know, such a contrast to the to the other stories.
1: Wow! W- when you share that, all of a sudden, I, I rem- was reminded of a session I was doing a couple of years ago. Uh, it, it was a group of people from uh, around the world uh, in a program, and, and I ask people to to kind of think of an encounter with a leader that mm-hmm. illustrated, you know, what you aspire to in leadership. What's the best of leadership? And this one lady from uh, Norway was, was struggling and she called me over and she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, just think about, well, can you think of an encounter that just kind of blew you away? And mm-hmm. immediately it came to her mind and I won't go into the long story, but the shorthand was when you said that my leader cared about me, mm-hmm. her comment was he knew my name. Before she had ever gone to work for the organization, mm-hmm. she had showed up at a meeting, and the senior leader in the organization, she had not interviewed with him, but he mm-hmm. came up, called her by name, said, we're delighted to have you here. Yeah. So here it Power is, call. two and a half years later, and shes he knew my name. That was the yeah. epitome of great leadership to her.
2: Yeah, and you know, the converse of that, or you know, saying that in the negative would be, I'm not invisible. Right. They see me. They see you me know who I am. We all want to essentially be known and seen and be visible.
1: Don't we? I mean, people want to be seen. Yes. Uh, and there are no invisible people. I mean, feel <laughs> invisible.
2: No time traveling. Back to the No, no, no invisible people. <laughs>
1: so you had three takeaways from love. The first one is my leader cared about me. What, what were the other
2: two, Renee? So the second was my team was like a family. And uh, you know, teams, family-like teams you know, rallied it, uh, in hard times and laughed and helped each other and celebrated together and provided all kinds of support and acceptance and care. And these teams were able, like significantly, they were able to um, deliver, you know, they described delivering the best value for people, um, being able to perform at this really high level. So th- they said things like, um, customers received the greatest service from us. Mm. We had a reputation for high-quality work. Um, and, and and one team described, uh, or one person described her team as like being able to put down a problem, uh, a challenge that they were struggling over, and the team coming around that and really, uh, you know, tussling over it, like having really good, healthy conflict, and and saying what they thought, and being able to tug and pull over something and come up with something better because of that, and that they could engage in that good, healthy conflict that would result in a better outcome because of the safety security love that they had on that mm. family-like team mm. produced, you know, excellent results. Absolutely. And then, yeah. And then the third theme um, was um, I received support during a personal crisis. So kind of the opposite of the fear theme. Um, and I, I, you know, heard some amazing stories of uh, people really facing tough situations, mm. you know, back to health, uh, death, yeah. uh, divorce, and so on. And, and teams rallying around them and, You know, one woman, I love um, how she put it after her team had rallied around her with her cancer diagnosis and in some just amazing ways. And when she came back, she said, when I returned, I walked through the halls surrounded by people who had carried me, that it was a holy ground feeling. They had carried me and we do important work here and I want to contribute and really make it count. Wow. Um, And, you know, the loyalty and the dedication and the commitment that she had to that team and that organization because of their commitment to her during that crisis was profound. She's still a state employee today, doing beautifully today. So, Renee, I heard
1: you just share very powerful stories, both of the consequences of fear at work and the consequences of love at work. And I want to ask you to kind of talk about what are the impacts or the results you've seen and, and the state is witnessing as a result of, you know, this make work more human initiative?
2: Yeah. So I'll say first that it's, it's, it's very, um, it's, um, you know, it's only been in the last six months, uh, that it's really gone public. Um, so the research happened and, and now this is really picking up momentum. Um, so I, uh, let me describe a little bit about what, what we're doing and then about what I'm hearing from people. So, okay. out, of, out of the, the research um, and the blogging and like beginning to share ideas out in the world, um, talks and, and teaching on this um, has also been engaging a community. Um, so, one of the things that I've known is that there were certain things in all of this that would make sense to me to do. And I needed to do those things and then see what other brilliance others brought and the prompts and the the requests and the thoughts that others brought forward that would make sense. Like, here's the next thing to do that I would never dream of, but other beautiful people would come up with those things. And and sure enough, that's happened. So um, the idea of convening um, a community around this, of meeting together with first people who'd been involved in the research who wanted to get back together again because they felt connected, Mm -hmm. Um, and then... Uh, of growing that community. And so we started out um, holding human workplace meetups um, in December and had 20 people that came together initially to begin to explore these ideas. And then um, those have grown. So um, 20 people, 30 people, another 30 people in March. In April, 50, in May, 60 people gathered, 60 um, public servants gathered to talk about empathy for a couple hours and to explore empathy as a as a you know a part of being human and, and creating a human workplace. Empathy for each other and empathy for customers. So this isn't just about, you know, how public servants are feeling, but it's about what then the value that we can deliver to customers. So there's this there's a momentum growing and a sense of um, community and extending from those conversations and exploring key ideas and then taking that and advocating back out into organizations. Um, and you know, we have blind staff who are finding ways to go back and influence in their teams and just being able to show up differently. Um, or you know, being uh, more confident that they're showing up in a human way is the right thing to do. It is the it is good business sense. Yeah. Um, and so you know folks are Folks are doing that um, across government in their, in their different organizations. And, and not just, I should say, not just in sort of social service type organizations or the, those, um, those agencies where you might think that that would happen, but across um, the, the full spectrum of kinds of work in government. Um, and then we have leaders who are participating um, who are um, or who are reaching out and asking this to be brought into their organization and and who are considering how they need to show up. And, you know, kind of back to the... The uh, the love themes and what we've learned from all this um, and leaders being central, um, it's not rocket science. Like it's pretty basic. it's it's be respectful. You know, it's give support. It's show care. It's have integrity. It's be humble. It's create safety, and, and you know, there every leader has to kind of grapple with what does that mean in my environment, with our kind of work, with my team, with the makeup of the team that I have, the people and their own particular needs. We've got to know our people and who they are and what they need, but it's 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 not it's not rocket science. So um, leaders are uh, and people are coming together to engage around this conversation, and then you know, spreading those um, that. Mm-hmm. Uh, energy and the, those insights back into their organizations
1: okay and then so this permeates different facets of state government across the state of washington yes but you mentioned at the very beginning there's this g to g arm and so yeah. this message of love is not limited to washington yeah. and you're finding this make work more human this conversation about love and fear is taking place in uh, across a wide spectrum of organizations talk about that before we run out of time
2: yeah, so we're, we're taking it where we can, and, and one of the, we just recently, my colleague Daryl Dameron and I, from our, who runs our G2G program, uh, we just recently spent a week in Pennsylvania with the Department of General Services in Pennsylvania, and Kurt Topper, who's the secretary there um, of that organization, with he and his leadership team, um, and engaged with them about... Uh, building a human-centered way of working in their organization and, um, and included in that uh, the, the centrality of this love-not-fear message um, and, and helping them to uh, consider that and embrace that in their organization. And they are um, off and running and going to town on, you know, we talk about running the business of government mm-hmm. in a human-centered way, and they're, um, they have embraced this idea and are, and are pursuing this as well. So, Well, where can people go to learn more? So, uh, makeworkmorehuman.com is the website, um, and there's a place to sign up there to receive notice of you know, blogs and, and different thinking, you know, different uh, opportunities. I will say that the meetups are beginning to grow, um, there's going to be one starting in Seattle. One in Spokane, and we do envision that those are possible to to expand to anywhere in the world. Um, and our, we're, we'll be putting out a model this summer for what what they are, what that looks like, what is a human workplace meetup, um, and and how could one start one in in their local government or state government or any organization really. Um, our focus is on government because we um, essentially believe I essentially believe that government matters. That it has an important role to play in society, and we've um, often government has fallen down on the job and not delivered the value that we are here to deliver. But we need to. We have to. It's essential. And uh, you know, delivering value, um, concentrating on the on the delivery of value, and trying to improve service delivery is part of this. And we can do that better um, if we are creating uh, government based on a more human workplace, a loving workplace.
1: So, Renee, what do you hope is the legacy
2: of the make? work, more human project initiative. Hmm. I hope that we normalize love as central to a successful workplace, that that just becomes an assumption that why, why, would, we not, why would we do anything else? Why, of course, that is the thing that we would do. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do anything else. We couldn't do anything else because that's essential to what it means to gather people together and, and do work well. Um, love has to be at the center of it.
1: Well, Renee, that is a perfect place to draw this conversation to a close. That's what I want to see happen, too, that we normalize love at work. And that, as Rich Sheridan, the fra- way he phrases that is we pump fear out of the environment. <laughs>
2: I love that. You know,
1: so pump fear out, facilitate love, and let's make work more human.
2: Anything you need to say before we go? Uh, I'm so, I the thing that, that I'm carrying is that this is there's our big ideas, um, and this we've been um, you know talking about a lot in the realm of ideas. But it's on it's on each of us if we believe this this idea is true, and, and we believe the research, and we believe you know it's not just this research; it's a whole body of research out there that shows that this is uh, true to our humanity that this is central then it begs the question of how do we operationalize it? How do we like give feet to it and make it real? And, um, you know, we didn't get into that much today. um, But I do think that it is on each of us to, to embrace the idea. And then we've got to figure it out. Uh, We have to determine how to make it real. And some of it, again, isn't, you know, it's not some big fancy, you know, um, secret sauce. It's showing up, as a, as, a, as a decent human being, compassionate, empathetic, caring, and treating our fellow human beings in that way, and, and asking the question of ourselves, um, here's a customer or, you know, I'm caring for this customer need, how, how can I honor and love this customer in this situation? What are, th- what are the operational ways that we demonstrate love by and deliver value to them um, in this work that I'm doing? Or, with my team member, what does that look like to uh, deeply and highly regard the humanity of my team member? to to, and you know which involves showing them love so I've got to figure that out for myself you have to figure that out for yourself every person listening has to figure that out for themselves and what a great
1: challenge that is what does it look like to demonstrate love in our environment today or in this encounter today and Mm -hmm. Renee the other thing that tees up is for us to have a follow-up conversation Mm -hmm. sometime down the road and, and talk about what this looks like in action And maybe we could find a way to do that in some kind of a panel discussion and have a couple of other people that we join in and and we talk about operationalizing love in the workplace. So we'll work on that.
2: I love that. That'd be great. Let's do that. And yeah, it would be great to come back and talk about, to bring examples and, and share sort of where the rubber meets the road, what it looks like in action.
1: Yeah. So I want to make sure you understand, you, the listener, you, Renee, this is not the end of the conversation. This is the beginning of this conversation. And this is a conversation and an initiative that really needs to continue in our world and the world of work today. Thanks, Renee. Thank you, Kevin. Well, thanks again, Renee, for joining us. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I certainly did. Here are a few of the highlights I heard. We started with what is the most important job of a leader? You know, there's plenty of debate on that, but I love the answer Renee shared to eliminate fear from the workplace. Well, that leads to another question. If you don't have fear, what do you have? Love. And that is a profound and provocative idea. It's not new either, but it's an idea we certainly need to recover, that love and fear do not coexist. And when you have love, you have eliminated fear from the workplace. And then I love the encounters Renee shared from her primary research and the things I heard was how fear always exacts a toll. There is a tax when fear rules in the workplace, but love pays rich dividends. How about you? I'd love to know what you're taking away from the conversation and how you will work to live with more love and less fear. So be sure And join us next week as we have another fascinating conversation with Brian Robertson about a revolutionary way that purpose-powered companies are stewarding power in their organizations. Until we connect again, it's Kevin, and I'm encouraging you to live, love, and lead with higher purpose.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Higher Purpose Podcast. Remember, if you ever think that your work could be less ordinary, there's not much between you and something extraordinary. Just 13 weeks and a bold experiment. Find out more at 13weekstoextraordinary.com.